You're listening to the Successful Executive Podcast with John Bellino. I want to thank all of you for listening in this morning to the Successful Executive Podcast interview. We're going to be talking with uh, David Schaefer, who is a uh, Vice President and Actuary at IAT Insurance Group. Good morning, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well, John. So... For those listeners that we have, what does IAT stand for? Uh, That's a big mystery. No one really knows. It was a uh, company that was purchased back in the 70s, and uh, there are a few theories, but uh, nobody really knows what IAT stands for. Kind of like nobody really knows what an actuary is except actuaries themselves, right? (laughs) Uh, Pretty much, yeah, yeah. It's somewhat of a unicorn. Yeah, they've heard of them, but no one's ever seen one. <laughs> good way of putting it. Very good way of putting it. So, what is the niche for IAT Insurance Group? Oh, well, we're a specialty insurer, so we uh, we do both primary insurance, which means selling policies directly to uh, insureds, uh, as well as reinsurance, which is selling. Insurance coverage and, and risk transfer coverage to other insurance companies. So, uh, you know, we'll write a lot of commercial lines. We do write um, some personal lines as well, mainly on the, the reinsurance side. Uh, okay. But uh, on the commercial line side, we'll do a lot of general liability. Uh, the area that I work in is uh, commercial transportation, which is a lot of uh, commercial automobile. Uh, trucking risks, uh, automobile dealers, things like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So with these autonomous driving vehicles, have you had to start thinking, I'm sure you guys have started thinking through that already. Uh, Is that becoming more of a reality yet, or is it still more in the experimental phase, would you say? Uh, I think that's something on the horizon. That's not something that's really in, uh, you know, overly common, particularly within the commercial trucking area. Uh, you know, okay. 10 years from now, I think it, it, it'll definitely be a much bigger issue. Uh, you know, there are certain safety systems coming on, um, but autonomous driving is still a ways away. And then, you know, each of these trucks and vehicles have a relatively long lifespan. So kind of changing the fleet from being one that is more traditional to one that is more you know, a lot of these automated safety systems will take a while. Uh, you know, bigger issues right now uh, for them really are more around, uh, you know, economy, emission, uh, emissions controls, uh, you know, fuel economy, um, as well as the way that they have to kind of track their driving, so their logbooks, okay. and getting those kind of all electronic. Uh, those are, those are big things for them right now. There are a lot of others. The electronic logbooks will cause a lot of uh, safety information to come, come around. So hopefully it will continue to improve their safety levels on the road. Interesting. Interesting. So is the... I've, I've had it discussions with other actuaries at other firms where the National Transportation Safety Board asks, actually looks to the 
insurance industry for some direction in some of that as well, based on what uh, the experiences have been. Have you heard that yourself before or, or seen that before? Uh, yeah, that's true. That's more uh, personalized things. Obviously, there's a many, many more personalized vehicles on the road than there are uh, heavy trucks and things like that. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the, it's all a frequency and severity game when you talk about insurance and claims. So how many claims are you having and how much do they cost? And, you know, the, the number of claims is going to be directly related to how many vehicles are on the road. And since there's so many more personal automobiles on the road, you know, that's kind of where they, they gravitate towards. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is very, very helpful. They do a lot of crash testing. They do a lot of monitoring of uh, speeds and things like that. And, um, you know, the, the likelihood of getting in a crash, how severe it will be, and the survivability of a crash is a big thing that, that they get involved in. Right, right. So how did you get started in the industry itself? Did you pursue actuarial science in college or? I actually did. I, I'm kind of a strange person who knew what an actuary was when I was in high school. I was lucky enough that I had a uh, very successful uncle who uh, he was not an actuary, but he employed actuaries. Um, and he, he kind of got me interested in, in, in the actuarial field. Uh, you know, I was always good at uh, math. My, you know, like a lot of uh, people my age that our fathers were kind of all in the engineering set, and so you know, there's a lot of uh, math skills uh, genetically passed down to me. So math was was strong for me, but I also uh, was very interested in business, um, and it was a good blend of you know math and business analytical. Uh, abilities uh, to to try and go out there and help you know effectively solve insurance problems uh, for companies and and try and make them more successful. So uh, it's a good blend for me. You know, through school, a lot of actuaries will will study you know strictly math or or strictly statistics. And sometimes people get into those majors and find themselves in their junior year of school and have to start thinking about okay, what am I going to do with this? And that's that's when uh, the actual oil field may come to their mind, but since I knew about it a little bit earlier, I actually uh, uh, wanted to major in business because I, I wanted to know more, much more on applied standpoint. How can I use all that math to, to effectively solve business problems? So, um, so I majored in, in finance and insurance, and but I took you know uh, pretty much all of my elective classes were math and statistics classes. So uh, it was a it was a pretty good balance between the two. I would say. So your uncle employed actuaries, but he wasn't actually he wasn't an actuary himself. That's an unusual uh, route. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. It's interesting. Yeah, he uh, he actually started and ran a pension planning company. Uh, oh, okay. A long time ago, so uh, he had pension actuaries working for him, but uh, yeah. property casualty actuary, but but you know similar backgrounds. Yeah. Well, you can't run a pension uh, firm without having actuaries on board, that's for sure. So, now, interestingly enough, you and I have known each other a while now, and you actually had a stint in my side of the business for a while, didn't you? Uh, very short. Like, that was 
you know, majoring in business, looking at just ways to learn more about, uh, you know, the products that I'd be supporting. And, and to me, that's always a good, good thing. Even when I went all the way back to my, I think my first real job, I was working in a shoe store. Uh, and, you know, they, they put us through some, some training, uh, there. And, you know, they, they really stressed, you know, know your product, the better you know your product, the better you can explain it to people. And the more knowledge you can impart to them, the more likely it is that they'll make a purchase. So, uh, that was always right. important to me. So I, I did work in, uh, you know, I had kind of internships and my parents were both, uh, in the industry as well. So right. from that from that standpoint, you know, I, I wanted to know more, like I said, about about the products, really understand them, and, and that way it'll help me uh, to to do the analysis behind the scenes and and uh, improve the product uh, as much as possible. So did you go into the industry more from an exploratory standpoint, with the intent of going really through the actuarial career path? In uh, using the financial services industry as a, I'm going to learn more about the product lines, or did you have an actual interest in that as something you might actually pursue as a business career for yourself? Uh, it was more background, but again, I, you know, hopefully everyone will be able to, you know, accumulate assets over their their lifetime, and so mm-hmm. knowledge of that is is good for everybody. Uh, but for me specifically, I, I wanted it, I wanted it more for a background. So, you know, I did a few different things while I was in uh, college, kind of preparing for that, working for uh, a research uh, group when I was in college uh, with some professors and things to uh, working in uh, life insurance industry, uh, getting my life insurance license um, and, and understanding that, and then also doing a uh, stint in the reinsurance industry on the property casualty side, both on a brokerage side as well as a reinsurance uh, reinsurer side. Um, before I went okay. to full time career in actuarial. Okay. Okay. So the goal was always to become an actuary. Uh, yes. Now the other ones could have been fallbacks because uh, you know the actuarial career is. You know that there are some pretty significant uh, barriers to entry uh, as far as the professional exams that you have to take, and, and they are very difficult. Uh, I was lucky enough to work hard and, and absorb the material uh, enough that I was able to pass the exams and and, and make it through. Uh, that's how I didn't get my professional designation. But again, you know, any any background that you can get, I think, just makes you more uh, well-rounded on those things. I mean. Uh, it, it is frustrating to me to see a lot of younger people that are coming into the industry and they know math and they know statistics, but they don't really understand the business at all. That that takes a much longer time to build that level of knowledge in them if they ever get it. And a lot of companies today don't really. It's it's much a short, it's much shorter time that they expect to employ people, I believe. So because of that, many companies aren't willing to invest the resources it takes to really properly train people. So that's that's a, a challenge in, in, in my field now. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I, it's one thing I've wondered about, uh, because I know the uh, learning curve in our industry is very, very, very long. 
and I would imagine it's very long uh, for for uh, your field. I I've been working with actuaries for the last 30 years. Correct me if I'm wrong. Originally, you had to pass 10 exams to become to become an actuary. Is that correct? Was it seven or 10 exams? Uh, well, it's, it, it changes every few years, yeah. So it, it, when I started, okay. uh, there were 10 exams that were broken out into 14 parts, and then they got rid of the parts and reduced the total number to, I think, nine. Uh, and now they've gone back to, then they went back to 10, but then I think they've also broken them back up into a couple of parts. So at this point, uh, I'm not actively taking exams, so... I, I couldn't really tell you exactly how many exams there are because they seem to change every few years. But uh, um, so you're they, behind they that. Now. Of, uh, all that I, I, I hope to be. I hope to be. I hope to be. Yeah. Exactly. So how long have you been in the uh, actuarial field now? How many years? Oh, 26 years. Uh, I've been in the actuarial field. Uh, graduated from. Yeah, I graduated from college back in 1993. Uh-huh. That's awesome. And uh, have you worked for a lot of companies in that time frame or just a few? Uh, I've worked for a lot is kind of a subjective term. <laughs> but yeah. let's say that I've worked, I, I've worked for more than uh, a couple. So I, I started my career at the Workers' Comp Rate Making Bureau down in in Florida, and then since then, I, I started working for private companies. Uh, I worked for a private company up in Ohio uh, before moving to Atlanta, where I'm located now. Uh, and since I've been in Atlanta, I have worked for, let's see, one, two, three, four companies. One company, wow. four companies, but, but one of those companies twice. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, people in your field don't tend to move around too often, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think once you get to a certain point in your career, you start moving less. Uh, as you, as an actuary, as you pass professional exams and your experience grows, there do become a lot of uh, opportunities early on in your career. And, you know, seeing somebody change, which is not that uncommon elsewhere as well, but, uh, you know, seeing somebody change every two or three years isn't that uncommon, right. uh, particularly when you get an opportunity to significantly move your career forward. Yeah. So four companies over 26 years, that sound about right? Yeah, five, five, yeah. Okay. So one, one company though was, one company was for 15 of those years though, so. Yeah, yeah, long time, long time. Yeah. Almost half your career, almost half your career. So. I would assume I yeah, naturally had many roles. Um, was there anything unique about any one of the roles that you uh, had with any one of those companies that you worked for that you found of uh, interest? Yeah, I mean, I think there were, there were two. One was actually technically not an actuarial role. It was a product manager role. Um, and that uh -huh. was one where I was ultimately responsible for insurance product that we were selling in a handful of states and that was one where again it kind of goes back to knowing the product more so I not only had to know the, the, the map and and the ability to, to figure out how to uh, price the uh, 
product that we were selling, but I also had to understand the forms and policy language. I had to go out and, and work directly with uh, the producers or agents out in the field. Uh, so again, that kind of gave me a, a good understanding of the whole uh, delivery process um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and a better understanding, not just the product, but also the way that it's sold and kind of what those needs are out in the, in the field so that I can you know, have a more holistic view of the whole thing. Um, the other one I thought that was particularly interesting was what I spent most of my career uh, as far as an individual uh, role in was uh, large account pricing uh, for commercial risks. So uh, that's one where every, where you would look at an, uh, an individual large company and rather than looking at just standard manual uh, pricing for a risk, you would go and actually design a, a customized uh, insurance product and price for that customer uh, to fit the amount of risk transfer that they'd like to see. So a lot of these would have, you know, large deductibles where you and I might have, you know, five hundred or a thousand dollar deductible on our policies. For maybe, um, you know, these would have fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, all the way up to five million dollar deductibles uh, that they would have. So the majority of the risk, the majority of the risk they would retain and they would use uh, the insurance company mainly for that outsized risk that they didn't want to accept on their on their balance sheets. But, you know, a lot of the risk, like I said, they would retain uh, under their deductible. But those were those were more interesting because you know, every client was was different. Um, every. Uh, deal was a little different, and even the individual client from year to year could be significantly different with the way uh, large companies might buy an operation or sell an operation. So uh, it made it particularly interesting. That is that is interesting. So there's because most people think of uh, insurance as like off the shelf, right? You know, if I'm kind of thinking of this, what do you have? And of course, most people don't really know what goes into the manufacturing of, of the product itself. That's sure. for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, and a lot of that depends on the sophistication of the buyer. So, you know, when you have, exactly, you know, some of the, you know, you and I, like I said, maybe we pay a few thousand dollars a year for our insurance, um, but I've had, I've worked with clients that pay, you know, several hundred million dollars a year as far as the long-term uh, wow. liabilities they may have on their books could be, you know, upward of a billion dollars that they're maintaining. Um, so those guys really need to understand their risk, understand the type of uh, program structure that they've got in. Um, so a lot of them will have professional risk managers that help them uh, do that on their staff, as well as uh, intermediaries that help them design and place their, their insurance business with them. Most of those develop long-term relationships with their insurers because of the amount of knowledge that they need to know about the business and the type of structure that they have. Absolutely. I don't know if you can talk about it, but what what type of industry would fall into something like that that is looking for something that's customized to their business model, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I think it's less about industry and just more about just general size, so you know whether it be you know an industry that sells you know more of a retail operation that sells directly to a consumer, 
or oh, okay. uh, manufacturing manufacturing operation to um, even governmental services like uh, you know some of the ones I've worked on have been very very large uh, companies that that run private prisons uh, which was kind oh, of really? interesting uh, interesting uh, client very but interesting. also you know also large trucking uh, uh, companies and in fact some of the uh, some of the largest retailers people think of them for their retail operations but from an insurance standpoint because they distribute their goods they're the main risk that they have it's really their, their distribution operation which is mainly trucking so um, a lot of different things like that could be car manufacturers airlines different things uh, could even be uh, companies that that are you know temporary employment agencies or uh, there are also things that uh, are basically uh, like a buying group for workers compensation so they, they allow small employers to kind of pool their risks and buy insurance together so a lot of different things that that you can see it's all really a a matter of size, you know, do they have enough, uh, in, you know, do they have enough size so that the pool of risks that they have within their insurance program, you're able to really get uh, a, a good estimate of the, the true exposure, the true uh, expected losses that you might expect to see from year to year on, on that risk. Um, you know, you and I, we may go, we may go 10, 15, 20 years and never have a, a claim. Uh, but these have, you know, consistent level of losses every year. Uh, so they have enough, you know, people that, that they put together. Like I said, you and I together, uh, maybe we only have a claim once in a while, but you put 50,000 of us together, and you can come up with a pretty good number of uh, claims that you can expect every year. That's interesting. Yeah, when you started to describe it, I was thinking of uh, shipping companies, um, airlines for sure, automobile manufacturer came in mind first. But it's interesting what you mentioned about retail that they're, again, to us lay people, we think of the slip and falls. That's not what it is, it's the trucking because uh, they've got to get their uh, goods, you know, to all of these locations. And uh, the risks are abundant between uh, where it's manufactured and where it's going to end up in the end. So that's, that's interesting. Sure. That's interesting. There, in the survey, yeah, there remember, are, you know, there's, there's a lot of difference ahead. between the number of claims. There's a lot of difference between the number of claims and the severity of those claims, too, right? So there may be a lot of slip and call falls in a retail operation, right? But most of them aren't going to be that severe of a claim. Maybe they're ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars. Maybe some go a little bit more than that. But if you have a, you know, a really bad tractor trailer accident, that can run into the millions of dollars. So. Um, oh, definitely. Definitely. I would think it usually starts there. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I remember um, a recent conversation uh, that you and I had where you had shared with me that you were responsible for building an actuarial unit for a very large company you used to work for. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, there was a... I was asked to kind of build a lot of the uh, the junior level staff. Um, the company I worked for had historically not had a tremendous number of actuaries for the amount of business that they wrote, um, and most of the ones that they had were fairly senior. And they knew that they needed to build kind of from the bottom, um, and they wanted to do that outside of the major metro area that they were in. So 
they asked me to do that. And so we went from you know, me being the only uh, actuary in, in the part of the country that I was in to uh, having, close to really? 60, having close to 60 actuaries there. Is that right? So, yeah. like, when you told me that you had this responsibility, I was just thinking to myself, like, where do you even begin with this? I mean, how much time are you given to pull this off? <laughs> well, when I made the proposal, I had a, a, a three-year plan. Oh, so it was your build. idea to do this. Well, you know, I, I, I kind of put together the plan of, of how we could build it. And my plan was to, you know, bring people in, get them trained up, uh, build a, not, not just their knowledge, but also the culture of the unit. Uh, and assimilate them into the, the rest of the company. Uh, uh -huh. So my plan was to, to hire, you know, 24 people uh, in a period of about three years. Uh, and so everybody liked my plan. They approved it. And then they said, can you hire 30 in one? Well, that would be a little tougher. But... Uh, <laughs> but but wow. we did it. I mean, it, 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 it was... It was difficult because, like I said, that didn't really give us a lot of time to get them up to speed uh, like I would have liked and to really assimilate them. Um, it went fairly well, but it also did create kind of a, a, a big bubble of, of staff there. So, um, like I said, after a period of two, three, four years, a lot of those people did end up going on to, to other positions. So, you know, realizing that you've got to build in staffing needs along the way was also something that we had to develop within the company. Okay. Is that one of the key challenges is, hey, we're going to hire this number of people, but we have to hire support staff for them as well? Well, it was really just knowing that, okay, I, I've gotten my staff up to this level, whatever it may be, 40, 50 people, um, and realizing that some of those are going to leave. Right. So even though you, you think you're fully staffed now, that doesn't mean you stop recruiting people. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, the military is actually really good at because they always know they've got to always be recruiting, even if they don't want to expand the number just to stay at the same number. They need to always be recruiting. So um, sure. that's a bit of a, a bit more of a challenge with a, a, a private company because, you know, they do, especially one that, as a publicly traded company, because they they have uh, to look after their uh, expense ratios, um, right. and you know an actuary is directly overhead. We don't produce uh, business or revenue for them, so uh, you know being a, a direct overhead position, you don't really want to overstaff those. You want to try and plan those as best as possible, and you know you can you can do that fairly well. But again, it, it kind of depends on on the cycles that people are going through. How, you know, uh, ironically, the the better you, job you do hiring people, the more valuable they become because they're better people. So it's harder to retain those. Have you found working with the companies that you've been with that a person who comes into an insurance company, because an insurance company is very different from really any other firm, at, at least the way I, I tend to look at it. 
Have you found people who had really no experience with an insurance company uh, get a greater level of appreciation for what you folks in your industry actually do? Because again, most people have no idea what you do. I, I know for me, when, I, when I'm talking to people and I ask them if they know what an actuary is, people, nine out of 10 people have no idea what they are. I you find that the people who are in the who come to work for an insurance company do they have a greater appreciation for how much reliance the company actually has on the work that you folks actually do because the company really can't function yeah. without work that you do right yeah i i I would say that's probably true um, but i I would also say that uh you know, a lot of, uh, when when you hear about an actuary and all the things that you have to do to become an actuary, how difficult it is, and, and the level of math that you have to know, and you know, math scares a lot of people. Uh, so they think that you know, most people think that we have some kind of magic wand, and you know, we the the work that we do is extremely difficult, and some of the work is extremely difficult and technical, but the majority of it is it is not really more complicated math than anybody that graduates high school uh, does. You know, so uh, now there's a lot of it and you have to really understand not just the math, but how to solve the problem. And that's that's what the bigger part is and being able to think through all the pieces that are going into it and all the considerations that you need to build into your, uh, you know, your model that you're trying to build. But, uh, but, you know, I, I think those two things, like you said, I, I think companies are really relying on it. Um, so that, that could be one surprise, but also the demystifying of it, which is a lot of things that I've tried to do uh, with within other organizations that uh, an insurance company has. So you'll have an actual unit, you'll have a finance unit, you'll have a, uh, a unit that handles claims, you'll have underwriting units, kind of demystifying what we do so that they can understand it better and apply uh, understand the, the, the recommendations that we make so that they can apply it better in what, what they do. Uh, and also how we're completely reliant on everything that they do. I mean, the, the underwriter decides what risks they're going to bind the company to. Uh, the claims person, you know, they handle all the claims that come in, which end up, you know, we analyze and, and, and try and use that to price the product. So, you know, the, the reliance across the insurance organization from one to another is, is very, very heavy. Um, you know, you can think of it as if you're building a car, everybody in the world can do a great job, right? But if the tires yeah. don't show up, you're not going to have much of a car, right? And that may be a little piece, <laughs> but knowing knowing that you have to have those tires uh, in order to have a viable product, sure, you know, it, it makes it pretty sense. important. <clears throat> that makes sense. It goes back to what I said. The average person just thinks that the pricing of insurance of any kind is created in a vacuum, and there's not a lot of thought that goes into it, and yet that's absolutely not true, as as I know. And you know yourself, because you, you price it yourself, so you know what really you know what the uh, the key ingredients are that need to be in there to make the uh, to make it viable. So, so if you could identify one or two keys to your success as an executive, David, 
what what would you say they've been? Well, for me personally, I, I, I've never been one to be overly worried about my my own personal agenda. Uh, uh-huh. So, like like I I started talking about, you know, to me being an actuary is about solving problems and it's solving other people's problems, right? So that's helping other people uh, with whatever problem they have on their desk or to help, help them you know, be more successful. So the more I can do that, whether it be someone, uh, you know, senior to me that's running a business or even junior to me who I'm trying to get into the, the industry and train them and, and make them become a good actuary, you know, I, I've always felt good about, um, felt good about that. So, and, and I'd say that's one of the other real strengths that an actuary typically has is uh, a lot of objectivity. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know, where, where somebody who has a lot of budgetary pressures on them, they may be really worried about, I need to make this sale. As an actuary, you know, typically, um, not a hundred percent, but typically <laughs> you're not really influenced by that. And you just kind of say, listen, you know, X percent return on this, this is the, the, the price you need to charge on average um, or you know it, we've already have all these risks uh, on the books and they're going to cost us this much so we need to set aside this much money to pay the claims that we're going to have you know it, it's kind of a, a, a completely black and white but it's not as uh as skewed by external influences as a lot of other uh, positions might be okay okay have you found that you might have a unique approach to working with your team or clients over the years that you've developed? I would hope so. <laughs> uh, I haven't done a lot of uh, introspection on that standpoint, but you know, again, for me, I always try and do a lot of listening. Um, yeah. Which, which ironically, uh, actuaries are not known to be good communicators. Uh, at least that's the the rap we get. Um, but I always, I, I always. Like I said, like you talked about, you know, all the, the the young people that are brought into up to bring into the industry. Uh, that's one thing that I've always stressed to them that their communication skills are key. You know, it doesn't matter what they can figure out, but they need to they need to be able to, to convince other people that the way they're thinking through it and their solution to the problem is correct. But also, uh, communication is not just what you say, but it's listening to what other people are saying. So it's a two-way street. So being able to understand what other people are saying so that you can really try and get to the underlying root of their issue, Um, not just necessarily a surface issue, but uh, the underlying issue. Uh, To me, that's kind of the the big thing that I I think is a little bit different uh, for me. Again, focusing not as much on myself, uh, but making other, other people successful again, you know, above or below me. Has kind of been my the thing that I focus on, uh, and I figure if I do that well enough, uh, if I provide enough value to other people, the rewards will uh, come my way in the end. Definitely, it's usually how it works, right? Hope so. How it works? Yeah. No, we've uh, we've we've told our kids if you want to uh, get a lot, you need you need to give more of yourself. So. Uh, and then uh, let God take care of the rest. It's interesting. So I I, I like what you say because uh, I, I believe that myself. So uh, would you believe that makes, that's what makes some executives sex, successful? 
uh, while others struggle. The fact that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in here and give it my all, not worry about what I'm going to get out of this, but uh, we're going to solve these problems for the client and see where it takes takes us from there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if you're talking about long-term success, yes. Um, you know, obviously there can be some shorter-term success that may not go that way. You know, it may be, uh, and that may and that may be frustrating for people that do try and focus on the long term. Uh, but you know, over the long term, if you're if you're providing good service, providing good value to others, then I think you'll be you'll be good. Uh, short term, you may have you know some some ups and downs. Um, some people may be very successful on 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 the short term, but you know, flame out, and you know, you never know. Uh, typically those, you know, maybe they're, they're not focused on the long term and they may not be focused on, uh, people outside of themselves. Um, but you see that and it depends on, you know, every company is going to be different. Uh, every mm -hmm. group of executives is going to be slightly different. Uh, but you know, the ones that can, can focus on the long term and, and ultimately providing the best value to whoever their customer is, whether it's internal or external, um, I think will ultimately be the most successful over the long run. Definitely. Now you've managed teams of people throughout your career, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was the largest number of people you had to manage at any given time? Oh, I think somewhere in the 40s, maybe. Wow. What types of challenges did that entail? <laughs> uh, well, the recruiting was a lot. Um, but, you know, again, I think as far as managing them, early on in my career when I started managing people, I learned uh, some valuable lessons about how important it is to hire well. Uh, because if you, if you hire well, then managing people becomes easy. If you hire poorly, it doesn't matter how good a manager you are. Um, just it's very difficult. So uh, the hiring process has always been a key thing for me, making sure that uh, the people that I'm looking to hire have that similar view of, you know, being able to provide value to solve problems for people. Um, you know, I also have a natural uh, level of inquisitiveness, um, good communication skills, obviously good analytical skills to work work in our, our field. But, um, you know, it's it's really, you know, the work ethic is the biggest thing, uh, particularly because to become an actuary, like I talked about, you have to pass these exams. Most of those are done on your own, uh, and they require a lot of self-discipline uh, and a lot of hours put in that are, you know, after you're done with school and when you're working full time and when all your other friends are out running around doing things that you'd rather be doing than studying. Um, so. You know, that yeah. having somebody that, that, you, that you can tell is going to be a very hard worker uh, and conscientious worker is, is a big thing. So, um, you know, the other thing is to, to if you hire the good people, then it's a lot easier to trust them. Um, and mm -hmm. trust them, it's a lot easier to delegate work to them. So, you know, thinking, the more you can think through kind of a, a plan of how you want to set things up and how you want to organize work, the easier it is to manage those, those folks. If you're trying to manage 40 people directly, that becomes very, very difficult. Um, but if you have, 
you know, a couple of layers of people to help you do that, then it's much easier. Now, that doesn't remove you from, you know, knowing the, the people that are, you know, two or three layers down. But, uh, you know, in the day-to-day -day stuff, it does make it a lot easier. That makes sense. That makes sense. Have you found for yourself that there's a sweet spot as far as as far as far as the size of the team that you found works best for you with where you are in your career at this time? Well, one works really good. I was gonna, um, you know, now I was going to tell you, <laughs> you can't tell me one. <laughs> yeah, one, 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 one is. One is typically very, uh, very easy, but um, oh, if, unless that the, one person doesn't have much discipline, then that could be a problem. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's true. You don't struggle um, with that. <laughs> yeah, you know, to me, I think if you, if you have no more than three to five direct reports um, reporting uh -huh. to you, then then that's that's a pretty manageable level. When you get up to eight or ten, that that becomes pretty difficult. Uh, to spend enough yeah. time with each of those, um, absolutely. But it also it, it also depends on on location too. If you're co-located with people, that's a lot easier. If you're spread across the country in different offices, trying to manage people, that becomes more difficult. Um, I've had times where I've been managing people in different parts of the world, from you know the Americas to Europe and Asia. And just the time zone differences are a, a big challenge to be able to spend enough time with them to, to you know, not only manage the work, but to develop the relationship with them, of, uh, you know, making sure that they're developing and, and focusing on the right things. Right, right. It's interesting. So what do you see as the big challenges facing your industry today? Been in it for 26 years. Things do have a way of evolving and changing. With regards to your industry, what would you say are the big challenges uh, that are in the here and now? More coming. Oh, the big challenges. Um, well, it depends on how you define my industry. If you define my industry as actuaries, uh, I think the biggest challenge is uh, making sure that that the people entering the industry uh, are focused on you know kind of that advisory role, helping to solve other people's problems, um, and they're trying to learn as much and not just focusing on I'm going to come in and I'm going to bang through these exams and I'm going to get paid a lot of money. Um, so okay. that that that's a big challenge because like like we talked about you know the if if you if you come in and maybe you can do the math, but you can't really solve the problem, yeah, then it doesn't really do you any good. Uh, if you if you can do both of those and you can't really communicate to other people and and kind of convince them, because a lot of times actuaries are known to give uh, not necessarily the best news to people. <laughs> so um, you know they may be they may be hesitant to to believe what you're saying, but. You know, to to, to also be a, a bit flexible. Uh, you know, what the the one thing about an actuary that I always stress is, um, and people ask questions. You know, is that right? You know, when when we do an analysis, and I'll tell them, no, it's not right. It's not my job to be right. My job is to be close. Uh, okay. Hopefully, I'm close. 
Um, now, Interesting. The, the key is you have to make sure they understand here are all the assumptions that I made that led to that, you know, recommendation. You know, if any of those okay. assumptions are different, then it leads to a different end result. So right. which of those pieces that we built into it may or may not be correct, or which of those pieces that we built into it can we potentially change to change the outcome? Um, so, you know, not, not being entirely 100% rigid on, yes, this is the answer. Uh, you know, I've seen more than one actuary uh, do themselves a disservice by, by being that way. Um, mm, interesting. But, you know, you know all, all these things are, are unknowns. Um, you know, when you sell an insurance policy, particularly, you know, some coverages like a general liability or workers' compensation, you could be paying claims on those policies you write today for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So, you know, you don't know ultimately what they will cost until long, long after the policy is sold. So, right. you know, there are, there are a lot of assumptions that go into that any of which could be off, um, some off significantly. Um, so, you know, again, kind of making sure you understand how you got to, to your recommendation and, and being able to examine, okay. you know, what okay. changes might be be warranted. But that's kind of the, the, the biggest challenge from an actuarial uh, industry is, is, again, kind of getting people to really understand what they're doing, not just be able to do the math. Because uh, a lot of people will be able to crank through the math, but then they come up with an answer that is not uh, helpful. Um, from an insurance standpoint, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different issues going on depending on, you know, whether you're talking about the, the role of government uh, in interacting with insurance companies. Uh, the amount of capital that are in uh, insurance companies, you know, weather risks become uh, have become you know bigger and bigger issues as uh, mm-hmm. you know you talked about the great weather in, uh, in Florida where you're at, uh, but you know, quite frankly, we can talk about why we're having bigger and bigger uh, losses from hurricanes. A lot of it is you know just southern migration. Um, you know, a lot more people are Definitely. living down there, a lot more houses are down there, a lot more houses on the coast. So uh, if you yeah. put assets in harm's way, eventually some harm may come to them. So that's, you know, that's a, a big issue because those are big capital events uh, for an insurance industry. And those don't even talk about, you know, some of the bigger things that, that we've been lucky enough to avoid. But eventually, you know, an earthquake is going to be a major, major uh, loss to the insurance industry and to, to the country. So how are we prepared for that? Um, those are kind of the long-term risks that some people forget about because they don't happen on a very frequent basis. But, you know, there are also a lot of other ones that could be going on from the electrical grid, and, you know, potential solar flares and things like this. You know, there's all kinds of things that, uh, uh, from a risk standpoint, could be out there. Uh, but, you know, long-term if you really want to talk, I mean, I, I mentioned the, the, the people coming into the actuarial industry. That's true uh, for the insurance industry as a whole. Uh, you know, as we have this large group of people that are going to be retiring and they need to be, uh, you know, restaffed with younger people. The biggest risk I see is having 
is the knowledge transfer that needs to go on from those more experienced people to the younger people that are coming in and making sure that that happens and doesn't get lost. Um, because the years of experience that people have uh, are quite yeah. valuable. Um, and you don't want that to just disappear. No, no. Very interesting perception. Well, it's interesting. I've, I've been working with actuaries for nearly 33 years now. And it's normally been folks who work with large companies. But just in the past two years, I've had three clients who've gone to work with startups. And mm -hmm. to me, was always like, you saw that on the tech side. You didn't really see the insurance side. Um, do you see that as a trend? I, I, in other words, uh, are there unique products, services, or even methods that you believe the startups are bringing to the industry that weren't there before? Uh, they can. They can. I mean, uh, you can look at one of the biggest insurers out there on a personal line side and, you know, 25 years ago, they were a startup uh, and they changed a lot of the uh, tradition. They changed a lot of the ways that were done to, to write personal lines insurance and that made them very, very successful. So, you know, there, there are going to be new ways to do things. You know, I think from a technology standpoint, technology can either help you make better decisions or it can help you do things more efficiently. And depending on what part of the insurance industry you're in, you know, there will be different emphasis, um, you know, where you've got risks that are much more similar, like in personal lines, than in the efficiency play is big, right? So a lot of these startups have come in and, and they've tried to do things on a more efficient way. Uh, and in personal lines in general, you know, the, the lower the cost uh, built into running your business, the, you know, the more advantage you have from a competitive standpoint. You know, if you, if you have the lowest cost in the industry, then you can charge the same amount as everybody else or even a little bit lower and make money where others can't. Uh, sure. You know, from a, you know, when you go to really complex risks, you know, being able to uh, use technology to, to enhance our decision-making ability, go kind of beyond an individual's own desk and relate that to a larger set of risks where, you know, we help them realize, okay, yeah, we understand the, the, that this individual risk has some characteristics to it, and we can build some things in based on just that. But if we take that and we aggregate that across other, another thousand of insurers who have similar risk characteristics, what does that really tell you? And it can help them make a better decision. And that's something that uh, is embedded within uh, a lot of data that, Traditionally, people haven't been able to really unlock that kind of information because of the uh, the lack of computing power and people to do it. Interesting. Interesting. Always changes, right? Always That's, changes. Always. I personally found that balancing what it's this is more on a personal personal note here. I've personally found that balancing one's personal and business life can be difficult, particularly if you're successful and you're responsible for a lot of people or projects uh, at the office, of course. Uh, I know for you, you've got three active kids. 
some of them are accomplished athletes. How in the world do you balance the demands of what your company wants from David while managing to attend what David wants to do for his kids? Because there is some travel involved, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, like, how do you do that? Because I found most, most of my actuarial clients have similar size families. And of course, yeah, you're you're paid well, so the kids can get involved with the uh, with more activities. And uh, yeah, like, how do you balance all that? Uh, well, first, I'd say I'm, I'm very lucky to have uh, my wife at home who helps with a lot of that. Right, so she she she's the CEO at home, so she's she's running a lot of that stuff, and you know, she herself. Uh, formerly worked as an actuary as well. So um that's right. So she, you know, she she takes care of a lot of that stuff now. I, you know, it, to me it's all some prioritization as well. So uh you know, I've had had jobs in the past that required a tremendous number of hours of, of you know, work time at the office. Um you know, and I could have stayed doing that um, if that was my priority, but that was not. So, uh, you know, after a certain amount of time, when I saw that that was not going to be ending, that's when I changed uh, changed jobs into one that was a little more balanced with, with uh, work and home life. So um, I think it's also really beneficial to, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with companies that are pretty flexible. So, um, okay. Because my my a, a lot of my my work I can I can do both in and outside of the office. So um, you know if I need to work remotely, sometimes I I, I can. Um, so that helps to, to balance it a lot too. What would you say is your number one piece of advice for new executives? And I think you've already mentioned it a few times. You know, to me, like I said, I, I think it's all about how are you providing value, and, and you know, that's how you're how you're helping others, right? Whether it's helping yeah. those below you be successful or those above you be successful, the more you can help other people be successful, the more successful you end up being. So um, that's the, the big thing. Focus not on necessarily on your own personal success, but the success of those around you. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I too, for me, have found that to be a uh, a formula that uh, is not going to fail you uh, in any given time. Uh, and the people below you do appreciate it, particularly when uh, it for for them they can view you as being um, uh, maybe somebody they can't talk to. And yet, when you put yourself down at their level and uh, you you pull them up by educating them in what's possible, uh, they do come back and ask you more and more, and then you become uh, almost like a mentor to them, right? Uh, it can happen. Yep. Yeah. So. And then they keep calling you even when they don't work for you. That's right. Yeah, they become <laughs> they become personal friends. Which is uh, the best thing that can happen, right? Sure. So, exactly, exactly. 
Well, David, I, I want to thank you for your very, very generous time this morning, sharing your successes and insight into a profession that, in my humble opinion, continues to remain largely anonymous with the public's understanding. Uh, as you know, I'm always looking to get connected to smart people like yourself in the industry who might be interested in appearing on the Successful Executive Podcast. And we'll always uh, welcome introductions by email to anyone who you think might be a fit for an interview as well. So I want to thank you again, David. Sure, John. No problem. The Successful Executive Podcast is hosted by John Bellino. John helps successful executives create a plan for lifetime income by addressing the five key areas that impact your wealth and retirement. To discover what these five key areas are and how to create a plan for each one, visit johnjbellino.com slash webinar for a complimentary video presentation. Material discussed is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian. New York, New York. Copyright 2005 to 2019, Guardian. John Bellino is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ 14021 Metropolis Avenue, Fort Myers, Florida, 33912, 239-561-2900. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Alliance Financial Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Alliance Financial Group, and opinions stated are their own.